The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and life. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am delighted to be joined today by Francis Herbert Buckley, or Frank. I hope you don't mind me calling you Frank. Yes, please do. And he is the author of a number of books, including most recently, Progressive Conservatism, How Republicans Will Become America's Natural Governing Party. Frank, I thought I'd start by asking about two words in, in that title. One is progressive and the other is will. And I'd like to ask you about progressive because, as you talk about in the book, it's it's been sort of stripped of its meaning slightly and it now is used as a word to mean people on the radical left. And then I'd also like to ask about the word will because you'd expect a title like that to say could become, but you are right. presenting it as almost uh, an inevitability that the Republicans are going to become America's natural governing party. There might be a bit of wishful thinking in that, I admit. But yes, I think it is where we're headed. But let's talk about progressive, shall we? Yes. Right. So I think the title was a little provocative, but it was also meant to signal that people, Americans and Brits, have an imperfect understanding of progressivism in the U.S. and also of conservatism and of the GOP and indeed of America. So if you go back into the history of the GOP, of the Republican Party, there have been a number of strong progressive moments. Lincoln was one of them. Teddy Roosevelt called himself a progressive. Dwight Eisenhower said that the, the Republican Party will be sunk if it's not progressive. And there were elements of that in, in Trump right, of whom we wish to hear no more. But nevertheless, you know, the, the Trump movement in 2016, of which I was a part, had a lot to do with the revival of progressive themes. And, and so I wanted to talk about, about the history of progressivism. And I think the, the key to this is you have to reimagine American history, not as a north-south story. We've, we've had enough of that. That's been played out but rather it's East-West. I'm, I'm originally from Western Canada, and Westerners here and in Canada and in settler societies generally have a very distinct feeling about how they're different from the East, right? And, and in America, this became the great theme of a fellow called Frederick Jackson Turner, I think the greatest of American historians. And Turner said, the history of America is a history of the frontier. America was always being pushed out towards the West, and the West had an image of itself quite distinct from the East. The West said, look, the East is aristocratic and we're not. The East is corrupt and we're not. And the East is cosmopolitan. It has a certain cultural cringe towards Europe, Britain particularly, and, and we're nationalists. So we're, we're immune from all of that. And we are indeed authentic Americans in that respect. 
And those were messages that we saw in Lincoln and, and Teddy Roosevelt and Eisenhower, Westerners, all of them, by the way. And and that those themes remain. It's it's not quite geographical the way it was with Turner. Actually, when Turner wrote his his paper, the frontier had already closed, right? And so now, when you think the West, you might think mistakenly. I think of Seattle and Los Angeles and San Francisco, which culturally or eastern cities, mm. right? But the the theme in settler societies of a of a corrupt east lording it over a poor west it's it's always been there, and it's it's given rise to protest movements. We saw it with Lincoln. I mean, Lincoln, the war apart, was the most important president in the latter half of the nineteenth century for his economic policies. And what he wasn't was a pure right-winger, right? He, this was a fellow with the Transcontinental Railway, with the Homestead Act, with land-grant colleges, and, 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 and he was, in fact, the person who invented the idea of America. The idea of America is the idea that whoever you are, wherever you are, wherever you come from, you can get ahead, right? And it, it's a matter of, it may be a matter of moving west to the frontier, but whatever it is, that's the promise of America, and Turner said that was the history of America. That idea animated America. Western states competed with Eastern states for people. It offered uh, cheap land. It offered good schools. It offered equality for women mm-hmm. uh, earlier than anybody else. And Turner said losing people, the East had to compete with the West by offering the same thing. And he said that movement extended all the way back to Europe. And and so it was all led, he said, by the West. Turner himself was from Wisconsin, then the West. Yes. And, and so that's that's the self-image of Westerners. We, we're, we're kind of, we're the van of the train. I suppose then in, you, 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 in the book, you call it the four turnings, Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, Eisenhower, and finally, Trump. I suppose Trump isn't a Westerner, is he? He's, he's the exception in that, in that. No, and and I suppose good riddance to Trump. The more we hear about him, the less we want to ever see him again. Mm. But when this began in 2016, it began as a as a progressive conservative moment, and I know because I was there. I mean, I I, I pitched my ideas. The idea of the idea of America being a major theme of the campaign was something that I was pushing, and it, it once saw it and speeches given by the candidate and his sons. The great theme about the idea of America is mobility. Mm. And in 2014, a poll was taken, and for the first time, Americans said, we don't think our kids will have it as well as we did. And that's utterly shocking. I mean, that should be the signal, should have been the signal for a revolutionary change. But the only person who made it an issue was Trump. Now, in fact, we're a highly immobile society in America relative to the rest of the first world. Britain, similarly, is, is highly immobile. The great winners in the mobility sweepstakes are countries like Denmark and Canada. They're highly mobile. And so if you wanted to mount a mobility agenda, what would you do? I mean, Frank Fukuyama says the whole goal is getting to Denmark. So what would getting to Denmark be like? It would mean things like free markets at home, an acceptance of capitalism, closed borders, and Medicare and cheap universities. Yes, okay? so quite an extensive social safety net. 
Yes, but you know, the interesting thing about it is it's not uniquely a right-wing or a left-wing agenda. It's a mobility agenda. So mm. it's a bit of both. It's progressive conservative, right? Mm. And, you know, and look, I, I pitched these ideas to the family. I told, I guess it was Jared, that Canadian Medicare was not nearly so bad as people said it was. We could do better, I said. Those words were expressly you know, mimicked by Trump a day later. Mm. So that was going to be part of it, but it didn't happen. It foundered on a right-wing Congress for the first two years of Trump's presidency, and then on the attack by a paranoid left the next two years. And so nothing came of it. And, 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 and then so, in fact, Trump became that which he most despised, a loser. He couldn't make it happen. Do you think, it's interesting talking to you about advising Trump family, do you think the Trump tax cut, some some people who were sort of behind the Trump movement thought that the Trump tax cut as a sort of signature policy backfired for him? Well, not really. I mean, the, the, the tax cuts gave rise to a great economic revival. You can't take that away from him. Yes. But what he wanted was something very different. I mean, the American tax code is is really horrible in all the little gimmicks and giveaways it gives to the rich. Trump wanted to take that on, but he was ruled by right-wing Congress. He was ruled by Paul Ryan in Congress. He couldn't get what he wanted, so he took what he could get. What he didn't have was the leadership to force his changes upon Congress. That just didn't happen. And so what he got was the kind of tax code that Mitt Romney would have liked. But but the idea is Mitt Romney was everything that was wrong with the Republican Party. And we had hoped that that had been buried. Yes. So he came up blank in really what was his his great legislative achievement, the tax cuts. So Someone you mentioned a bit in the book is Goldwater, who, of course, failed himself to become president, but was seen as the, the sort of starting point for the, for the conservative movement as it has come to be known, or as it came to be known in the decades that followed, and, and that ended up being politically triumphant for a time. Yes, right. The Goldwater movement, and Goldwater admittedly was a Westerner, the Goldwater movement decided that it was the brains of the Republican movement after 1964. I mean, 64 was a disaster for the GOP, but the people behind it became the brains trust of the Republican Party. And I think that was a bit of a disaster. And that's exactly what the Trump movement was all about, reversing 60 years of right-wing ideology. So when I use the word right-wing in my book, it's not a compliment, right? What I wanted to say was the Trump movement and or what is going to follow mm. will be, to use that word, will be a repudiation of what the, the GOB became. So what, what are we talking about? We're, we're talking about libertarian policies and economics, which gave us open borders. We're talking about a Republican Party that played footsie with racists, right, in people like Lee Atwater. And we're talking about idealism and foreign policy, you know, as seen in people like George W. Bush or Don Rumsfeld. And I describe that lot as roughly the Altamont of the Republican Party. That's exactly what needs to be buried. If you read The Conscience of Conservative, Barry Goldwater's book, which became the Bible of the movement, he begins by basically attacking a Republican spokesman from the Eisenhower administration. 
Alas, I'm old enough to remember the Eisenhower administration fondly, right? The coonskin caps, all about the cap guns, all of that stuff, I remember it. That was a high point of Republican Party. I mean, he was the most popular president of the 20th century. He had an admirable record on things like civil rights. The, the GOP was the civil rights party at the time. Prominent African-Americans like Jackie Robinson were Republicans. And we simply gave that up with our with the GOP's Southern strategy. Mm. And it was a huge mistake, which the GOP is still paying for. Someone you also mentioned is uh, Roosevelt, FDR, who you say is a progressive conservative, even though, of course, he's not on the Republican side. I think I'm, I'm aping what my friend Conrad Black has had to say about, about FDR. FDR was, was admirable in, in, in many ways. He was, in many respects, the conservative candidate in 1932. And, of course, we in Britain and Canada remember him as the necessary president in 1940 and 44, mm. right? So, you know, he led an extraordinary economic revival. The, the GDP of the United States grew 10% a year for four years running. And did he understand economics terribly well? Well, well, in fact, nobody much did at the time. So Roosevelt saw himself as a crisis manager. He threw a lot of things up at the wall to see if they'd stick. Some were terrible ideas, like the Blue Eagle. Yet many of them basically got Americans back to work. And that's exactly what was needed at a, at a moment of crisis. So, you know, the way to judge Roosevelt, I think, is compare them not with the absolute, but with the alternative. And the alternatives we're talking about are the very much darker policies of the Huey Longs or the National Party in Britain at that at that time. I mean, fascism was at one time the coming thing, right? I mean, uh, Harold Nicholson flirted with that party. Mm. So all the you know all the smartest people at the time thought this this was just the cat's meow. This was splendid stuff. Well, we didn't go there. And if we didn't go there, we can thank FDR, not Calvin Coolidge, for that. Plus, you know, here's the interesting thing. Not merely is it accurate to describe Roosevelt as a progressive conservative, but progressive Republicans joined the administration. Mm. Four Republican senators, including Bob LaFollette from Wisconsin, voted for Roosevelt. And many of the brains trusters, including Henry Wallace, came over as Republicans. Yes. So it, it's very much a mixed bag, and there's a great deal of presentism in the right-wingers who look back and say it all went to hell with Roosevelt. <laughs> Do you consider Nixon to be in any way a progressive conservative? Yes, he was in many respects. He let uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan favorably compare him to Disraeli. Okay? So, you know, for progressive conservatives, Burke and Disraeli are heroes, Okay. He also, Nixon, was a person with left-wing sympathies, liberal sympathies with respect to economics. Mm. You know, th there was a, a famous chart, which I had something to do with making it famous, about American politics, dividing America into quadrants. And the winning quadrant is the upper left, which is economically liberal and socially conservative, and that is precisely the definition of progressive conservatism. Mm. It describes Nixon fairly well. I mean, obviously, there, were, there was a dark side to Nixon, which nobody particularly wants to defend, least of all me. But he, he was, in economic policies, a very much a middle-of-the-roader. 
And do you think the enemies of, I mean, you, you mentioned different enemies of progressive conservatism, the first among them are the libertarians. Do you regard them as the, the people getting in the way of a proper progressive conservative agenda focusing on what you call the common good? Well, you know, the funny thing about the libertarians is how much they played above their weight. With this chart I described, put together by a fellow called Lee Drutman, asked people to identify their policies and who they voted for. So the libertarians came down to 3% of the voters, and that 3% split their vote evenly between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Politically, in other words, they're absolute nothings, right? Now, what they have going for them is they understood economics, and mm -hmm. they brought the economists into the party. And, th and that was a good thing. Their problem was not economics, but economism, which is the notion, which, you know, Ruskin ridiculed, that economics provides the answer to everything. And it, and it doesn't, right? There's a lot more going on than that. So they had a tin ear with respect to issues like welfare policies and the like. They were simply uniformly opposed to them. A moment ago, I described a mobility agenda as distinctly a progressive conservative agenda. And I said that would embrace things like a decent health care system. Mm. Talking about the common good, the common good is, the way I think of it, is it's something that came out of Catholic social teaching, but it's got a very Christian background as an idea. Do you think that that is what it has to be drawn from? That's what progressive republicanism, progressive conservatism, that's what it has to draw on? Well, absolutely. One of the things that's peculiar to America is the swing voter, the marginal voter, the median voter in America is Catholic, mm. right? Who he votes for basically decides who wins the election. That's been true of, I think, every election but one since 1960 or before. So I also was in 19, 2016 involved in kind of Catholic outreach stuff. And Trump, who began very, very poorly with respect to such issues, became quite adept at reaching out to that constituency. I attended a dinner party with a reporter from the New York Times afterwards, and I talked about this and I said, well... You know, one of the things we did is we got Trump talking on EWTN, a Catholic network. Mm. And he said, what's EWTN? Right, so <laughs> perfect. Like they had no clue. Right. <laughs> totally under the radar screen. So, yeah, the overlap between what I call progressive conservatism, which is the history of the Republican Party, and Catholic social teaching or, or Catholic sympathies generally is very close. Mm. So very strong on social issues and middle of the road, you know, social gospel on, on welfare issues. Well, on that subject, obviously the big news in America, as far as the world is concerned, is the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I think it's probably the biggest big news in America too. Where does a progressive conservative Republican Party stand on that? Obviously it would be pro-life, but would it favour some sort of compromise? which seems to be where the middle ground of America is. Exactly right. You know, I, I think the important thing about the reversal of Roe v. Wade is it will bring a degree of moral seriousness to our politics and to Americans as individuals. I mean, right now, up till the reversal, right, if you were pro-choice, you were for last-minute abortions and maybe just a little bit beyond that, right? So late-term abortions would be absolutely fine. Well, that's not going to wash, right? So those kinds of voices, which basically seem to run the Democratic Party at this point, are going to be marginalized. 
By the same token, on the right, we've said, well, you have to understand that we have in America the most liberal set of abortion laws anywhere. If you look at Europe, they're a good deal more restrictive. Well, okay, if, if Europe's a model here, then what we're not talking about is a flat ban on abortion. We're talking about something like, well, gee, Roe v. Wade was first trimester, right? So we're talking about something like that. Now, this is a battle that's going to take place at the gubernatorial level, at the state capital level. It, it won't, it'll, they'll try to make it an issue at the federal level, the Democrats will. That's going to be a little hard to see unless they're talking about craziness like, you know, increases like court packing, right? Mm. That's not going to play terribly well. But at, at the state level, we'll see the states sorting themselves out. And, you know, I think in most cases, we'll have a compromise down the middle. Donald Trump is taking a lot of the credit for the overturning of Roe v. Wade because, of course, he nominated those three Supreme Court justices who voted to overturn it. But in your book, you're suggesting that it's sort of America's Republican Party is going to move on from Trumpism now. Well, I, it, it will move on from Trump, right? But yes. if the Republican Party wants to win another election, which it will, it will also want to get the support of the people who voted for Trump. So the key to all of this is Trumpism without Trump, which is, you know, I'm not exactly coining a phrase here, but everybody yes. knows that that's really what the party has to do. It has to adhere to the new policies that Trump brought to the party while completely repudiating Trump himself. Do you think that will happen? I mean, that's the big question in politics at the moment, is, is does Trump go away or does he run again? No, he's not going to run again for a number of reasons, one of which is that he'll be a, a loser if he tried. He's a loser already in 2020. So, you know, the brand is too tarnished. Mm. You know, what do you do in those circumstances? Well, I'm in Virginia and we have a new governor here who showed roughly how you do it. What you don't do is dismiss Trump, particularly, or go out of your way to, to say how much you despise him. You want to hold him off with a 10-foot barge pole, but you also want to retain the people who voted for him. You know, that can be done. And Governor DeSantis in, in Florida and Governor Youngkin in Virginia have shown how you can do that. This book's more, possibly more optimistic about America than your last book, which was about secession. Yes. And boy, uh, I mean, talk about timing. <laughs> well, I mean, some people think that the issue of abortion shows how America will break up along state lines, because of course, if it goes to states' rights, and then they go very different directions, and they increasingly become more and more hostile to each other, is progressive conservatism the only thing that can stop secession? I suppose I'm asking. Well, you know, I lived through a secession crisis in Quebec. I'm originally from Montreal. And so I began writing about secession thinking there's nothing you know, terribly surprising about the idea that, that a country might want to break up. I mean, it seems to me the more democratic you are in some respects, the more that you're going to tolerate the possibility of secession. That's the Canadian compromise. And it's roughly also what what the Brits are prepared to do with respect to Scotland. I mean, I hope it doesn't happen, of course, in Scotland. But, but you know, if, if you're democratic, I mean, this, this was the point of a Canadian constitutional case on the matter. If you have the strong voice of a section of the country that wants out, you can't ignore that and at the same time claim that you respect democratic norms. Mm. So that doesn't mean there's a unilateral right of secession, 
what it means is that's when people start talking. And that that's basically how it worked out in Canada and, and you know, how I think it would work out in Britain and how it would work out in the United States. A major theme in the book, which you've touched on, is is the idea of aristocracy and how, unless it's resisted, aristocracy is the system into which societies fall into. Do you think perhaps it's inevitable that America pushes back against it, that inevitably America and actually all democratic societies will fall into some kind of system of aristocracy, by which I mean an elite with lots of privilege and lots of wealth and a much larger rump of people who have very little privilege? Well, immodestly, I offered up a theory of history in which I said that aristocracies tend to arise naturally and the resistance to them is what's of interest. Mm. I said the Progressive Conservative Party I'm describing should be the mobility party. It should be the anti-aristocracy party. It should be the party of the frontier, of Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier, of the settler societies out west. And so it's going to be a constant struggle. I mean, there'll, there'll be a tendency to create an aristocracy, but at the same time, there'll be a tendency for it to ossify, to make uh, growth impossible, and that'll lead to a kind of revolution. And to head off the revolution, what you need is a party dedicated towards a mobility agenda, which I said is what the progressive conservatives ought to be here. Mm. You know, the, the, the thing that's really frustrating about this is the Republican Party is, is the brain, it's a stupid party, right? And, and so it gives these issues away to the left. It's, it give, it's given away the corruption issue to the left, which is absolutely stupid. Mm. It's given away the mobility issue to the left. The left is permitted to pass itself off as a party of equality and mobility. You know, horse feathers, it's anything but. To the extent that we're immobile, we're immobile because we have a crazy immigration system. We, we actually import immobility into our country. What should be a ladder bringing people up into the middle class, a good school system, they've allowed to be destroyed because they're in league with their allies in the in the teachers' unions. So, you know, really, and, and you know, then you have a regulatory state which provides jobs for its lawyers and lobbyists. All of these things involve are supported by allies of a democratic party. They are the party of, of immobility, of aristocracy. Mm. Right. And, and the progressive conservatives should be the rambunctious party that wants to end all of that. Isn't this part of America's great problem in a way is that the, the frontier spirit rubs up painfully against the push for the common good? Because the, the frontier spirit is about individualism. It's about failure and success. It's not about social support. Well, I'll, I'll admit it is about guns, but that's a separate issue, which <laughs> as a Canadian, I don't claim to understand. But, you know, Westerners were not exactly hostile to the state. In, in the Western United States, there was a great demand for the U.S. cavalry, right? And for railways, mm. right? I mean, progressive conservatives love railways. I mean, from Lincoln to Sir John A. Macdonald. I mean, we, we, you know, Sir John A. Macdonald used to get on the cow catcher of trains and ride over trestles in Alberta. I mean, he just loved these things. So that, that was about nation building, and nation building is something that as nationalists, conservatives want. And that means things like an infrastructure, it means things like a highway system, and uh, the Westerners, the settlers, were not libertarians. You do tap on something, I admit, which is an interesting puzzle. 
which is to what extent is individualism a creature of the West? That, that's how it was presented by the Goldwaterites. Yes. Right? And it, it, it wasn't quite accurate. It never, it, these things never are. Isn't that a, a Catholic-Protestant ten- tension then? Yeah, I guess there is a lot of that. You know, the um, Catholics depended upon the state to take care of them in, in states which were fiercely anti-Catholic, like Oregon. Mm. So they were the beneficiaries of that. And I, you know, I grew up in a little French Canadian town in Western Canada. We never saw the state as the enemy. Yeah. You know, the only person with a handgun around was the RCMP officer. (laughs) Perfectly fine. You know, he was going to get get his man. Finally, Frank, I'd like to ask you a, a grubby horse race question, if you don't mind. Who is the progressive conservative candidate going to be in 2024? I have no idea. I think the themes that I'm describing are themes that will play themselves out over time as people recognize their salience. Whoever the candidate is, I don't think it'll come from the Senate, which is largely brain dead on issues. Some people like Tom Cotton have picked up on some of the issues like immigration. No, I I think the answer will come from the states. Mm. And I think that'll be important because the one thing senators don't know how to do is govern. But if you're a governor, that's something you've learned. So governing means cutting deals, you know, finding alliances, making things work. It's something senators never have to worry about or never think about. All they think about is how great they look and, and you know, how they'd be a wonderful president. But, but that, was, that was Trump's problem. He wasn't able to govern. I mean, government presents you with a whole bunch of levers. And you have to be intelligent enough to know which one to pull. And he never did. I mean, Trump surrounded himself with absolute creeps and deadbeats and psychophants and appointed a terrible set of cabinet officers. He had some great cabinet officers like Mattis, but was unable to get them to agree with him. and They didn't last. So as a governor, as an administrator, he was just awful. Well, you've neatly ducked. The, the question. But thank you very much, Frank, for coming on to Americano. And please come on again. Yes, delighted. Thanks so much. Great to see you. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review.